Welcome to Season 2 of Three Associating. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. A podcast that goes behind the door of therapists working in a relational psychoanalytic model. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. We're both therapists. And we're both supervisees of Jill. And I'm Jill, a therapist and supervisor, co-author with Jackie Winship of the book The Talking Cure. While people might think that therapists have it all together, by now you've discovered we don't. We get stuck, experience challenges, and have blind spots. And these persist. All of this continues to affect our work, and this is where relational psychoanalytic supervision comes in. And this podcast will give you a look behind the closed door of relational supervision which focuses on how the therapist's blind spots affect their work and their ability to help the patient. More traditional forms of supervision focus on the patient and how the patient affects the therapist, but relational supervision complements this by focusing on both what the patient and the therapist bring to the table. In each episode, we explore a relational dilemma arising in the context of work with a fictitious patient. While none of these patients are real, the relational dynamics are. Episode 5. Help! I'm a borderline nightmare and I need reining in! Hey Rach, you know how I'm someone who usually cries on average about once every five years? Yeah. Well, I think I've just cried five years worth of tears in one session. Well, I'd offer to give you a hug, but I think you only accept one of those once in every five years too. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So Jill, today I'm bringing you someone who I had a really unexpected reaction with in session last time we met, Mm -hmm. and I'm exploring it more in my own analysis, but I'm sort of after guidance about where to go from here in the therapy. Okay. Okay. So the woman's name is Bhavani and she's 29, and I've worked with her for about a decade sometimes meeting weekly or twice weekly or fortnightly, just depending on need and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. what's been viable. So I first encountered Bhavani uh, in a DBT group that I was co-facilitating and she approached me and and kind of pulled me aside at the end of the first group and said, help, I really need individual therapy. Um, And she said, I'm a borderline nightmare and I need to rein myself in, (laughs) (laughs) which was like, which endeared her to me (laughs) a lot. (laughs) Um, And those two concepts, I guess, have sort of formed the pillars of our work. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we've really been looking at sort of deepening Bhavani's understanding of herself and expanding the kind of borderline nightmare tag Mm -hmm. and also helping her to to rein it in in using her words. So there's been a number of themes of our work. The first has been protection, both from herself and from others. Mm -hmm. So when I first met Bhavani, who I call B and she calls Mm -hmm. me Andy, when I first met B, she was really resourceful in using hospital admissions as a way of reining herself in and protecting mm-hmm. her from herself when she needed it. So she had lots of self-destructive impulses around self-harm and suicide and sex and substances. Mm. And she's transitioned from using hospital for this function to using therapy for the function. Okay. And now mm-hmm. she's able to do this for herself. Right, right. Okay, good. Um, She's also sort of needed protection from her parents, mm-hmm. um, who her parents were very determined not to do any harm to her. And this meant that they raised her with pretty inconsistent and unclear boundaries. Right. And they unintentionally enabled dynamics of dependency and reinforced patterns of escalation. Mm-hmm. 
And so a crucial part of our earlier work was protecting the relationship between her and her parents by helping them to renegotiate and maintain appropriate boundaries in their relationship. Okay. And did you meet with the parents? Yeah, I did a lot of work um, with the parents, both one-on-one and as a couple and with the three of them in the room. Okay. Yeah. Pretty intense. Yeah, it was really intense. different combinations in this family. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they really were able to kind of take it in and make systemic changes even Mm -hmm. at that stage, um, which was impressive, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bhavani has also needed protection from the father of her child. So she felt- Just how old is Bhavani? She's 29. 29. Yeah. And so she fell pregnant unexpectedly to someone who she called a friend with benefits um, about four years ago. And when she chose to keep the pregnancy against his will- he became increasingly threatening and she had to take out an AVO against him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a number of our sessions have been spent on very kind of practical elements of safety for B and for her son mm-hmm. Archie, mm-hmm. who's now three years old and who has no contact with his um, father. The second kind of theme of our work, I guess, has been what I would understand as like a strong paternal transference. Mm-hmm. So we've enjoyed a pretty dynamic connection from the start of our work together which has been built on, I think, a shared sense of humour and banter and scepticism around convention and authority and some common interests as well. Mm. Mm. And B's often talked about feeling like I'm the protective older brother that she never had. Our work's also been characterised by rupture and repair, so our relationship's been pretty turbulent. Um, B's not always responded well to my enforcement of particular boundaries, especially Mm -hmm. earlier in the work. Um, And I don't think I've always enforced boundaries in a kind or wise way. Sometimes it's felt more reactive and sort of self-protective. Okay. Can you give me an example, Randy, of a reactive one? Uh, Yeah. So I would say cancellation fee. There was lots of um, tension initially around what happens with cancelled sessions and Mm. how much time is needed to cancel a session. Mm -hmm. What happens Mm -hmm. if something comes up unexpectedly? She was very chaotic when I worked with her initially. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that... um, when she pushed back against that really strongly, I would tend to be really rigid, okay. um, which was sometimes mm-hmm. necessary, but also sometimes mm-hmm. just me being reactive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've endured a fair bit of kind of anger and hurt and disappointment on mm-hmm. both sides in our relationship. But despite some major bust ups, we've managed to find our way back to each mm-hmm. other. Another theme in our work has been, I guess, kind of helping B to realize her potential. So mm-hmm. she started therapy with a tendency of occupying a position of active passivity or apparent competence or both when mm-hmm. she faced certain challenges. And we've worked really hard to help her understand what she's capable of doing in a particular moment and what she might need help with and how she can go about getting help more effectively mm-hmm. than just acting mm-hmm. passively or acting apparently competent. And becoming a mother has been really transformative for her. So I felt quietly cautious when she chose to keep the pregnancy. Yes. But she really describes how the physical process her body went through with Archie instilled in her a newfound sense of confidence and competence and Mm self-respect. And Archie's regularly accompanied her to sessions since his birth. And it's been really gratifying for both of us to watch her put into practice with Archie a lot of what we she's been on the receiving end of in therapy and Mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of boundary work that we've been doing, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. And she's always dreamt of owning her own apartment in Melbourne. And recently an opportunity came up for her to relocate there for work. And so this transition has been the focus of our recent sessions together. Mm-hmm. And this week I mentioned in passing about the logistics of online sessions. And she paused and then she said, but, but Andy, I'll finish up when I move to Melbourne. And I felt really shocked because I assumed that we continue 
our work. How did she put it? Just say again what she said there. Oh, she said, but Andy, I'll, I'll finish up when I move finish to Melbourne. Finish up, finish up. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And then she said something along the lines of, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but she basically said, um, and I'll probably get emotional when I read this because this is part of my response that came up. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so she said, you know, I, I sort of, I, she said something like, I started therapy without any sense of, of who I was or what I was capable of. Mm-hmm. And I was completely vulnerable. And through being protected by you, I've learned how to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And I found my strength with you beside me, but mm-hmm. now I'm sort of strong enough to continue on my own. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she gave this analogy of like, it was like my, she said, my, it was like my hand had sort of steadied the bike that she was yes. learning how to ride, but that she felt was now risking holding her back. Mm. Um, mm. And she said something like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to ride on my own and I'm not just going to ride, I'm going to fly. Mm-hmm. And so her eyes teared up as she said this. And I had this image of her arriving in an empty apartment in Melbourne with Archie on a hip and a suitcase in hand. And I saw her filling the apartment and building a life for the two of them. And I kind of realized in that moment that there was nothing apparent about this competence, that she Mm. really could Mm. do it. And then seemingly out of the blue, I just started to cry and I couldn't stop. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. And I felt, and like I said, it kind of, I mean, there's still the remnants of it now as I'm talking with you. I can feel. Yeah. Yeah. You're still tearful. Mm. Yeah, Mm. really. Um, It's very deep. Mm. Yeah. But it totally took me off guard because I hadn't Mm. felt this way kind of in session with her before and- Mm. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, she B said, she's like, Oh, look at look at you. You've become a borderline nightmare. <laughs> because I was, you know, okay. in this sort of dysregulated okay. state. And, you know, I, I smiled back through my tears and I said, Yeah, I think I think I need to rein it in a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I actually kind of excused myself from the room to compose myself because I felt like I just needed to take right. a bit of time right. to be able to kind of hold space for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and we continued the session, but I, I think I fear that more of this will happen before we finish our work together. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to contain my response and to hold space for mm. B. Mm. Um, and I think I'm still trying to work it out because, like I said, I haven't felt this way with her before. Yes. And I finished up with lots of patients and I'm mm. okay with patients not needing me anymore. I feel like that's kind of one of the points of the work in a way. Yes. So, you know, conceptually I feel okay with all of this. Mm-hmm. But-, but, but, but Andy, yeah, in the room with me, because your eyes did fill up with tears. Can you just stay with that a little bit and see what what is happening with you, with this particular patient, that you feel so sad, really, about the parting? There is something that is touching you deeply. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why I'm confused is because I don't know if it's sadness. I don't, like, there's definitely a sadness there in terms of not, I think a sense of not knowing what her life will look like when we're no longer in therapy. But that's also very important, that it might not be sadness. So then what are the tears? Yeah. So it f- Just try and contact what you were feeling like three minutes ago. Yeah, it's definitely still there. It's, I think it's a sense of feeling... It's something about feeling moved mm-hmm. about the about her growth. Like I feel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's something about. I feel like when I met her, she was this sort of. Um, I don't know. She didn't really have a sense of who she was in the world. She was this sort of 
boundaryless um, sort mm. of teenager mm. at the whim of her emotions. And now she's like this really capable mum and, you know, a kind mm. of, she's really come into her adult self. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, I feel like I've worked really hard with her, but I also feel like so much of her growth is an indication of her kind of strength and resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's just something moving about that. So are the tears kind of bittersweet? Is that how you would describe them? That uh, Because how I experienced it was that, yes, there is something extremely moving about her growth and the fact that you were the facilitator of the growth and the fact that she can move to gratitude and to actually validate you. Mm. She's also very clear in the boundary of we're going to finish up mm. and taking control of that. So something really significant, but at the same time, there's a part of you that I think also sees her as very vulnerable. She arrives at an empty compartment in your fantasy with the baby or the little person on her hip. Mm. And, you know, then she has to fill it. You believe she can, but there's still a vulnerability around that. Mm. So that's what I felt bittersweet. So really it's very validating of your own work and of her work and your work together, but also kind of in contactness with a certain vulnerability that she is not uh, feeling that she wants to be in contact with and may not be there. So the question is, Mm. you know, what is one projecting onto her perhaps or what is she um, denying? So there's something about your fantasy of vulnerability that as I'm experiencing Mm. it doesn't charm with how she's depicting herself, which might be that you're projecting it onto her or she's denying it. We don't actually know. Mm. So that's where I went. And then it's very powerful in you. So I do hear you saying you're working in your own analysis, and I think that's important because it has to be hooking Mm. something in you. And I do know enough about you, Andy, to know that you've had a number of departures, Mm. you know, from – home, from friends, from various people having to make decisions yourself about going and leaving, and you're in the midst of that right at the moment. Mm. So that, yes, to be worked on. And then I wondered what the, so first of all, I do want to know your comment on what I'm saying. Mm. I don't want to now project all my stuff into you (laughs) in the parallel process. Yeah. So I think I'll keep quiet and hear what you have to say and then I'll go to another point. Yeah, I think what you're saying about the sort of vulnerability that I'm either projecting or kind of connecting with, I guess, or maybe both, mm-hmm. I think that feels really true because she was so vulnerable when I first met her and now she feels so sort of empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think she is still in a vulnerable position in some ways. I don't want to I don't want to kind of overstep you know, or like yes. fragilise her because – Yes. Um, but yeah, maybe there is a vulnerability that she's out of touch with that I'm mm-hmm. sort of more connected with. Yes, and that you're actually holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe there's something about feeling, uh, I don't know, sad about not still being able to try to protect her in some way, but also happy that she can feel like she's able to protect herself. Yes. 
you know. Well, that's why I said bittersweet, because that's often the feeling that a parent has at a wedding or at some moment or at a graduation or some key moment in a child's life where you're so happy that they've made it, but you're also sad because it's a movement Mm. away. So that seems to be, and also you know that there's vulnerability still there, but still one's happy, but sad. I'm hearing that. Then, and I'm hearing you saying that's accurate. Yeah. 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 Then the other thing I wondered about, and I wondered what the tone was when she said to you, you turning into a borderline nightmare. (laughs) I I wondered what her tone was when she said that and what the affective uh, climate was between you. Yeah, between that, you, I know you were crying, but what was yeah, she yeah. That uh, it felt the tone was very much the banter that we've had throughout our relationship, okay. and that term borderline nightmare because she sort of started with that. Yes. It's a term that we've yes. really spent a lot of time unpacking. Okay. So it didn't like it could have sounded like it was aggressive or that sort of thing. It didn't feel mm. that way. It actually felt it felt like she was recognizing in me a sort of uncontained quality mm-hmm. that she mm-hmm. brought into the therapy, and she was naming that. And I think yes. I actually found that containing, and then I responded with, you know, I need to rein it in. Yes, yes. You know, which I mean, that's which sort was of, your language together. Exactly, yes. exactly. So it felt, yeah. Um, yeah, it felt like caring. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I just needed to check that because it could have been either way, but it clearly was caring, which means yeah. she has moved beyond yeah. the borderline nightmare. Yeah. But I, I think the sort of um, depth of what you were feeling. I find myself hesitating, and I'll say why, because I don't want to actually pathologize something that's positive. And so my free association was, I do understand that it's hooking something in you, and clearly you think that too, otherwise you wouldn't be working on it in your Mm. analysis. Um, I think it's actually appropriate that one feels bittersweet, but not perhaps necessarily to the degree, because I think... Yes, your perception, I do need to rein it in. But where my mind went was, well, I wonder if what she says is true and that you're carrying some of the uncontainedness in terms of things like, you know, projective identification. And then I thought, hmm, maybe not. I had an ambivalence, maybe not. Maybe this is just a human encounter. And one doesn't necessarily need to psychoanalyze it or mm. psychologize it. But it did go through my head. So mm. I'm just actually sharing that with you. Mm. I mean, we're toward the end, Andy. So questions and comments and thoughts, because I feel we're not quite ended. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I think I'm just – I. Uh, I'm trying to work out what to do because even talking with you now, it's like the response is still very active in me and it still feels mm. like it's so sort of unprocessed and unknown, which, like I mm. said, I'm working on in my analysis. Um, but I'm just trying to work out sort of what to do going forward, I guess, mm. Um, mm. And, and how to, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have to excuse myself from the room again. Yes. Well, do you think it would help? It's a real question to share with her. Uh, some of these thoughts to reflect upon your own reaction, which means then one's one removed from it and say, look, I had a big reaction. Mm. And these are some of the thoughts I've had. Clearly it's hooking with something with me, which Mm. I'm working on, but I also think, and then 
to say in what way you think it's reflecting mm. your work with her, your thoughts about her going forward, your happiness that she's going forward, but your anxiety that there might be still uh, challenges and, um, mm. you know, how she might think about managing those challenges if they arise. So I, I'm wondering whether that might be helpful, but what do you think? Yeah, I think that sounds like it could be helpful because it was sort of, I don't know, I guess it's sort of including her in my response and then mm -hmm. using it to sort of, I don't want to say like turn the spotlight back on her, but that's sort of what I, that's sort of what I want to do. I don't want, mm. I don't want her to help me process the response for me. I want to help us process it in mm -hmm. relation to our relationship and to give her something from that going forward. So I think that. Yes. Yeah. I, I think to say to her, look, I think it did hook something in me. For yeah. me would be important because that's the reality. But then to say, and over and above that, I think in terms of our work together, this is what I feel and you going forward, this is what I feel. So mm. you then are sharing with her that thought about the vulnerability, um, the fact that you can rejoice in her moving forward, but mm. there is some thought around that. And yes, because I agree, you don't want her to help you process it, but nevertheless, it's still material that's telling you something about how you conceptualizing her with that image of her mm. uh, at the lonely, you know, at the empty flat, not you may or may not share the image, but there's still something about her in that image that mm. might be helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the sound of that. I think that would be yeah. that will help me to 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 rein it in and to <laughs> <laughs> and to use it in a way rather yes. than sort of being overwhelmed by it going forward. Yeah. Yes. So to sort of step back, so there's you and the person that had the reaction. So there's kind mm, of a mm. doubling going on. Yeah, yeah, that would help. I think. Yeah. 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 All right, Thanks, Andy. John. Good. Thanks. Okay. Now we're going to reflect together on what happened in the session. We identify the problem that we took into the supervision, what we call the dilemma, and we identify what we're taking out of the session, the distillation. We also explore the blind spots that emerged. Blind spots include bright spots and dark spots. A bright spot is when we are blinded to the overall picture and can only see a sliver of what is occurring in ourselves and in the interaction. A dark spot is when the issues are more completely out of sight. Okay, Andy, what was your dilemma? Yeah, I think my dilemma going into the session uh, was similar to the dilemma that Bhavani came to me with when we first started working together. So to use her words, I, I felt that I'd become a borderline nightmare and that I needed help reining it in. Yeah. And what was your distillation? I think at the end of the session, I realized that I needed to clarify what belongs to me, what belongs to Bhavani, what belongs to the both of us, I guess, um, and to reset that boundary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jill, what was the bright spot? Well, Andy, I think you were blinded by how long and how caringly you had held this particular person's fragile self-state so that you weren't expecting such an independent self-state to emerge in the session and certainly not one that pushed for an ending to the therapy in quite an abrupt way. So I think that was the bright spot, the identification with that fragile self-state. And the dark spot, I think your own personal issues around endings led you to take on the vulnerable self-state of the patient 
the one that appeared in your image of her in the doorway of her apartment, and you sort of became her. And there was a muddle between what belonged to you and what belonged to her. And so it was hard to help her stand in the spaces between. And I think you became distressed and confused yourself in the moment. And what were your learning points, Andy? I think I had a couple of learning points. The first was that competence isn't categorical. It's a process. So it's not about being either competent or not competent. Um, There's a spectrum there, I guess. And the second learning point was that as human therapists, we do bring things into session that need to be processed in our own therapy or analysis. And these things are more about us and our history than what's happening in the room. And that certainly came in with my work with Bhavani. Mm. And the teaching points, Jill? Well, I think my first point is beware always the borderline dynamic. As it disappears in one guise only to reappear in another, as ironically the borderline nightmare that the patient had escaped, it would seem in that moment, re-emerged in the confusion in the session of what belonged to who, and Andy began to feel that he was the borderline nightmare, so the dynamic just sort of switched locations, so to speak. But this doesn't contradict the fact that I feel a great deal of progress had been made, but it is an ongoing challenge to work out what belongs to us, to the other, and the in-between. And my second point is that in an effective therapy, we need to be affected in a genuine way by our patients, including their borderline dynamics. And this is what Freud spoke about when he spoke of a cure through love. And do you have a final question, Andy? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm intrigued by this idea of a cure by love, Jill, and um, and this idea of sort of being genuinely affected by our patients and how that might be related to this idea of a cure through love. So just interested to hear more on your thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. Well, Freud made this comment in a letter to Jung, who, as we know, unfortunately, had some rather egregious sexual boundary crossings and violations. And that's definitely not what Freud was talking about in terms of a cure by love. It's not about a cure via erotic or parental love. Rather, it's a cure by letting the other person into your being and being affected by them, and then speaking about the experience and making meaning of it with empathy and thoughtfulness. By that, I mean that you help the patient to make their own meaning of it in a kind of emotional insight. And this is the type of love that we call agape, or the Greeks called it agape. Nevertheless, like all love, it has its challenges. And thus, once again, we are happy to be Three Associating. You've been listening to Three Associating, a podcast on relational psychoanalytic supervision with Jill, Rachel, and myself, Andy. If you enjoy this podcast, a great way to support us that will help us to continue to make new content is to leave a rating or give us a review on the platform that you listen to this podcast on. See you next time.